talking and I'm not and I'm just <laughs> And then I'm talking <laughs> No, but wait, wait, I have something for him. Boom, you get shot down. Now you're just fucking me, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids. The Weird History and Eerie Tales Podcast. Concentrate on the news. It's what we do. Wow. <laughs> FYI, there's nothing right. wrong. Stick them up my ass. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode <laughs> of the Weird History Eerie Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Moses Soria. And with me to my right is my brother, Josh. How's it going, guys? With me to my left is Archie. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The boys. Bling, 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 the boys are back. Bling, bling, bling. Guess who's back? We are fucking back. And Josh is alive. I'm alive. You're alive. Bad it's times. Bad times. Horrible times. They'll, they'll, here, here's how I knew what was going on. I listened to the episode. <laughs> 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 I was like, I hope this guy is good. I hope he's doing fine. I mean, because you would text us. Yeah. And then we're we're shitty texters as it is already. Yeah. You guys are horrible. I, we get Fuck you guys. Oh, I, th- I think yeah, I'll get a yeah. faster reply if I freaking send an envelope. You, you, yeah, you I might, probably, re- might, yeah, I probably reply faster yeah. if it was handwritten. Like he texts on a Monday, hey, how you guys doing? Like fucking Thursday, hey, man, we're doing good. How's everything? We're good. One word reply, good. Okay, okay. Thumbs um, up emoji. But yeah, we're back. I'm thankful. Like I said in the last episode, I'm more thankful that I have that I don't I don't have to fucking do these anymore by myself. You, you know what? Fucking horrible. Not gonna lie. Not gonna lie. You're you're like one man show episodes. They ain't bad. I'm horrible. You 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 say like I fucking hate this and blah blah this and that. They ain't bad. And I'm pretty sure our listeners can attest to that. Before I I could sense the awkwardness, but now you got it. I don't like you. Stop getting sick. Stop trying to die. Stop trying I'm to not, die. I'm looking at you. Oh, you looking what the fuck? <laughs> I'm yeah. yeah. You. So we are back together for a doozy of a topic. Yeah. It is spooky season. Mm-hmm. Spooktacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like I said in the last episode, we're gonna be covering a topic that I said we'd never cover. But like I also said in the episode, I ain't shit. So of course we're gonna cover it. Uh, we are not too big on serial killers, but because it is Halloween, I was like, fuck it, just let me try to do a monster of an episode. Literally, and today we're gonna be talking about the horrible, horrible Albert Fish. Son of a bitch. You know, so this is going to be part one of our two-part series on Albert Fish, where we're going to focus on one specific case, you know, for now, which helps paint a better picture, at least, you know, I, at least when it comes to Albert Fish. So, for those of you that do not know, Albert Fish was an American serial killer, a child rapist, and cannibal. During his lifetime, he was suspected in at least five murders, but he himself, he bragged about having a body count of over a hundred and having done a child in every state, whether he meant he raped a child or murdered a child in every in, in every state we'll never know albert fish he was a monster in every sense of the word and indulged in coprophilia europhilia pedophilia masochism and pickerism he was in and out of prison for most of his adult life including while he was on the run from the police but as we're going to find out over and over again his frail framed and grandfatherish appearance got him off the hook again and again, but like like Josh and I were talking about it earlier, motherfucker had like a pretty, pretty grotesque upbringing. Yeah, to say the least. Pretty fucking bad. Yeah, man. Well, it's sad. It's sad because it is. It, it could have been. Everything could have been preventable. Oh yeah. Everything could have. Everything could have been preventable, but because of the time period it was, 
born in the 1800s, born to, you know, his dad was a fucking a thousand years old when he gave birth, when he fucking got his mom pregnant. Mm-hmm. His mom was like, what, 30, 40 years? The, the dad was like 40 years the senior of the mom. Mm-hmm. So, like, Albert's dad had, like, shitty, shitty jizz. So it, just, it was just, <laughs> it was horrible from the get-go. But the story of Albert Fish, it doesn't begin with the Bud family. But that's where we're going to start since his interaction with the Bud family was the catalyst that truly showed Albert's vile impulses, which ultimately led to his eventual downfall and capture. So let's begin with the Bud family. A family of seven that lived in a small apartment on 406 West 15th Street at the edge of Manhattan. Albert Bud was the father of the family. He was a thin, skinny man who seemed to have every bit of life squeezed out of him. And in the book, he's described as being a hapless air about him and a look of perpetual bewilderment that was partly the result of a shitty glass eye. They didn't say shitty glass eye, but that's what they meant. Like, he he had a glass eye. He wasn't, like, an impressive stature of a man. He was just, like, a skinny old dude Mm. who was just, life just beat the shit out of him. And then we had his wife, Dahlia Budd. She was a big lady. And she had, like, a droopy jaw that added to, like, her always looking like she had that resting bitch face. Mm. And they, in the book, which is the source for today's topic, called the book's called Deranged, The Shocking True Story of America's Most Fiendish Killer by Harold Schechter. Harold describes um, Delia Budd as a mountain of a woman. A mountain of a woman. A mountain woman. of a woman. So you mm. could climb her. That's what, well, ultimately, that's what Albert Budd did because they had five children. Albert Jr., Baby Beatrice, Little Grace Bud and Edward Bud. Edward Bud, he was a short but strong 18-year-old, and they and they described him as being built like a block of stone. Ooh. So the year, it's 1928, and this is before air conditioner, so their apartment was hell. And young Edward, he was just tired of it. He couldn't take it. He was like, I gotta get out of the city, and he wanted to go for work. He wanted to leave, get take a few months vacation just go out into the country and work and you know just get some air and just get a swole on so his mom gave him the idea to put out a classified ad which he did on friday may 25th 1928 and this is what he put on the ad young man 18 wishes position in country edward bud 406 west 15th street so that same weekend his ad was put on the paper and on sunday in a different part of the city an old man studying the classified ads saw Ed's ad. And to anyone else, that ad was something you just skimmed over if you weren't looking for anybody to hire. But for this old man, for Albert Fish, those words of wanting out of the city filled him with such a rush that it immediately turned into this vile desire. So Monday came and the buds heard a knock on the door. And naturally, Miss Bud yelled, In a minute. And she made her way to the door, and there stood a small, elderly old man, dressed in a dark suit and a black felt hat. He had a newspaper tucked under his arms and looked, you know, rather dapper, considering where he was. Mrs. Bud, she wasn't used to any uninvited visitors, let alone fancy ones, so she asked if she could help him. The old man took his hat off, and he said he was looking for a young fellow named Edward Bud, that he read his ad in yesterday's newspaper. My name is Frank Howard. I'm here with an offer that might be of interest to your son. So she invited him in, had one of her kids go fetch Ed from his friend's house. 
So Frank walked into the Bud's apartment, walking a little bow-legged, and he sat down in the Bud's armchair. But as he sat, Beatrice was starting to run out of the house to go fetch Ed. Frank called out to the little girl, and with his old, bony, liver-spotted hands, he grabbed her by the wrist. You remind me of my granddaughter. What do they call you? After she said Beatrice, Frank reached into his pocket and took out a shiny coin, and he gave her the five-cent coin for fetching Ed for him. Mrs. Bud made Beatrice say thank you, and just like that, she dashed out the door. She then offered Frank some lemonade, told him she had some freshly made in the icebox. So Frank took in what he was seeing. The apartment's windows faced a back alley, and even in the brightest days of summer, the whole apartment it was just covered in shadows. So much so that Delia had to turn on the lamp just to get some light. And then when she did, she got a better look at Frank after giving him the lemonade. She couldn't tell how old he was, but she did notice how dried up he looked, with a hollow face that almost resembled a skull. He had a sharp beaked nose, watery blue eyes, a little bit of gray hair, and a mustache that drooped over the corners of his mouth, revealing Frank's moldy teeth. Mm. The way she described him was... He kind of looked like a rat because of the way his mouth protruded over his teeth. Like he had like, she had a rat face to him. But in the light, and in the light, his navy blue suit looked a little shittier than it did in the dark hallway of the apartment. Hmm. So this guy isn't as fancy as I thought he was. Frank, so Frank had just finished drinking his lemonade. When rushing in comes Edward and his best friend, Willie. Another strong young man, also built like a slab of stone. They both shook Frank's hand and they sat down on the couch. And Frank explained that for many years he worked as an interior decorator in Washington, D.C., and that he had done very well for himself. He had a good marriage and six children. But then his eyes began to fail him, and he said it was a sign to give up his trade and do what he always wanted to do, buy a little farm. However, his wife, she fucking hated the country life, and after a year she left him and the kids. Life was hard for Frank, being both the mother and the father. But everything turned out for the best, and his farm was successful as well. He said he had over 300 chickens and half a dozen milk cows, and that presently he had five full-time workers and a Swedish cook. One of his most dependable workers decided to move on, and by the grace of God, that same weekend, that's when he saw Edward's ad. Oh, all of a sudden, hmm? Hmm. So what a story. So he looked at Edward, and he complimented him complimented him on how strong he looked and he said he looked like you're strong enough to work so he offered edward 15 dollars a week for as long as he stays with him i'll give you 15 dollars a week and you get bored and stay and in 1928 money that's not a lot of money that's only 200 bucks 200 bucks a week to work fucking construction that's not a lot but i don't know take it he took it edward then turned to willie who had that look on his face like come on dude tell him like, ask him. Like, like him say yes. So Edward asked that Willie was also looking for work. <clears throat> Frank then turned to Willie and after a few seconds went, All right, I can always use another fine big fellow on the farm. So after a few moments of small talk, Frank reached into his vest pocket and told the buds that he had to be on his way. He had to tend to some business in New Jersey. So lifting himself very slowly and gingerly, he told the boy he told the boys to pack the oldest clothes they had, and that it would return the coming Saturday with a car to pick them up and drive them out to Farmdale. 
And as soon as the door closed, the boys started dancing and and high-fiving each other all around the living room. And for the next few days, both Edward and Willie were preparing and getting ready to leave the city. But little did anybody know that the old man, Frank Howard, was even more excited. And he, too, was preparing for what was to come next. Oh, boy. So a week goes by and both the boys spent most of Saturday at the Bud's apartment. When late in the afternoon, a knock on the door, both had Willie and Edward run to the door only to find themselves face to face with a Western Union delivery boy who handed Ed a message and kind of just stood there until Eddie tipped him 10 cents. <laughs> Damn. So Ed read the letter out loud. Been over in New Jersey. Call in the morning. So obviously both the boys were they were bummed out. They were ready to leave, but it was already late and morning was just a couple hours away. They're like, fuck it. We waited this long. What's another you know, what's another day? Not gonna kill us. Dun, dun, dun. So nobody knows exactly why Albert delayed his plans for a day. To this day, no one knows why he just didn't show up on Saturday. Do you think that is because he saw the boys and he's just like, motherfuckers are built. I don't know if I could take him. He had cold feet. He had cold feet. <laughs> he had cold feet for the killer. I mean, maybe. Maybe he found another victim. But, you know, but in the scheme of things, it made no it made no sense to anybody but Albert. No one knows why he why he just, just didn't show up. The, yeah, no, nobody knows there was no reason for, was, we're going to find out there was no reason for him to do it. Nobody knows. No, nobody's ever going to know except for Albert. Just trying to honey dick them for a little bit. Especially considered, like, there was no reason because, like, especially when you considered how impatient he had been the week following up to that Saturday. Mm. As we're going to find out, neither of the boys were exactly what Albert had in mind. And it wasn't his M.O. to go for anybody that he might feel could overpower him. It's no secret that Albert was disappointed in the way the boys looked. But he was possessed by the bloodthirst that he would later call it. That he couldn't pick and choose. Sure, Eddie and Willie might not have been his first choices, but they would do. That week, he had important things to take care of, things that needed to be done, and he attended to them all while trying to ignore the excitement of what was to come. Sometimes, just thinking about the boys, his excitement was so intense that he almost felt paralyzed from it. One thing on his to-do list was to go shopping, and on Tuesday, the day after he visited the Buds for the first time, he stopped by a pawn shop called Sobel's, and for less than $5, he had bought three items that he knew he would surely need. Three essential items that we will get to later in the episode. Admiring his purchases, he placed them neatly underneath his bed. So now it's Sunday, June 3rd. And at 10.30 in the morning, Frank, dressed in the same shitty blue suit from last week, got off the subway on 14th Street, and began making his way to the Bud's apartment. In one arm, he had a little bundle wrapped up in a sheet, and in his other hand, he had a bucket that dangled from his hand. On the way to the Bud's, Albert made a few stops. He went to the local deli and filled the bucket with fresh pot cheese. He stopped at a fruit and veggie stand where he bought strawberries. And then he stopped to buy a newspaper. And while he was at the newsstand, Albert struggled to even get the money out of his fucking pocket. Uh, you going to be able to manage the paper too, Pop? I'm not too sure. So Albert, fed up, he put everything down to pay the man. 
And then he nodded at the bundle that was tied in a sheet. Mind if I leave this here for a bit? I promise I'll be back for in an hour or so. Uh, sure. And then he made his way to the Bud's apartment, which was literally just around the corner. Hmm. Albert knocked on the door of the Bud's apartment, and Mrs. Bud, she greeted him, and she greeted him warmly. As she led him into the living room, he noticed they were all dressed in their Sunday best as they had just gotten home from church. Hmm. She then introduced him to her husband, Albert. Fished and handed over the bucket of berries and cheese. These are for you. You'll never taste creamier pot cheese than that. I can guarantee it. No sweeter berries. Albert Bud asked if these were from his farm. And Fish said yes. And he smiled. Hmm. But he had this weird smile. You can tell it was forced. And he didn't know how to laugh. So he would just make this weird... <clears throat> Weird, like, noise and smile. Like, he, he just didn't know how to laugh. Got so whenever someone said something funny, he would just, and just smile. <laughs> <laughs> so the Bud family invited Fish to stay for a potluck lunch. Eddie was playing stickball, which is just baseball, but with a stick. But he was going to be home by noon. So while they ate, they chit-chatted. Albert asked Fish about his farm as they moved the conversation over to the couch. As they moved, Albert apologized to the Buds about being a day late and said it was because he was over in New Jersey buying horses. But as soon as he was about to sit on the couch, he stopped and asked Mr. Bud a question. The message I sent, do you know if the boy threw her away? Eddie stuck it over here on the mantelpiece. So stepping over to the mantel, Fish picked up the message. He looked at it for a bit. And then just casually slipped it into his pocket of a suit jacket and walked back to the couch like nothing happened. His mother he took the mail back. He took, he took the note back. It's my letter. The evidence. Yeah, they were just like, what the fuck is this weird? But they just mm. didn't think anything of it. So Fish, he started to retell the same fucking story to Albert Budd about his family and his career and whatnot. When suddenly they heard the front door open and somebody entered. Grace Bud stood in the kitchen doorway. Everyone would compliment little Grace on how pretty she looked and how pale she was. She had this she had these big dark eyes, nice brown hair, had a really pretty smile. And she was still dressed for church and the outfit made her look a little more grown up than she really was. Fish smiled at Grace and patted his leg. Come here, child. Gross ass motherfucker. <laughs> so Delia Bud told Grace that this is the man that Eddie was going to go work for. Grace then walked to the table and she stood by his knee. Fish was stuck on stupid on Grace. That he stared at her so intensely that he acted like nobody else was in the room. Oh boy. They kept talking and chit-chatting and he just kept staring at Grace. Then speaking in a soft voice, Fish kept asking Grace questions about her friends, her favorite pastimes, and then about school. As he was talking to Grace, he reached up and started to stroke her hair. Grace, obviously uncomfortable, she squirmed. And she looked at her mom and kind of like, the fuck is this lady? Like, what the fuck is going on? Fish then picked up Grace and he sat her on his lap. And he asked her how good a counter she was. So like pretending to be one of the members of the fucking Migos, he put out a thick wad of cash. 
and just set it on the table. Then he reached back into his pocket and he pulled out a handful of coins. Grace picked up the bills and the stack was so thick that she needed both hands to hold it. And she counted them. She counted them back onto the table one at a time. Then she counted the coins one at a time. And the total came out to be $92.50, which is in 1928 money, like around $1,500. Oh, shit. So Frank Howard, Robert Fish was walking around with 1500 bucks in cash. So he patted her on the head and he gave her 50 cents and told her to go buy candy for her and her older sister, Beatrice. Mr. and Mrs. Bud, they thanked him for making the children very happy. But Fish, he wasn't listening. Nope. He was still in his own little world, lost in his head. And one of the crazy thing is, is when he took out his money, like when he took out the <coughs> water cash, cash. Grace yeah. to count, yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Bud, they kind of looked at each other like, oh, like, oh shit. Like, these oh, he has money, money. Like, oh, money. He money. So then Eddie and Willie, they showed up a few moments later, and they burst into the living room. He apologized to them about yesterday and made another announcement with everyone present. I am not going to take you two to the job right at the present. I received a letter from my sister yesterday, and she is throwing a birthday party for one of my nieces, which I'm going to intend. Here's $2. You and Willie and some of the boys go take in the moving pictures. Later on this evening, after the party, I will pick you up on my way home. So the boys, you know, they fucked off happily to go watch a movie with their friends. And by that time, Grace and her sister had shown back up again. Mm. So Fish got up and he told the family he had to be on his way. But just then he paused and he wondered out loud. And then he asked the buds if Grace would like to accompany him to his niece's birthday party. He told them it was going to be a really cute party with lots of children and games. And he promised he, he would take really good care of her. And he assured them she'd be home no later than nine. Bro. The buds kind of looked at each other. It's and they were drop. They were both kind of like, oh. It's pretty weird, dude. But $92. But, you know, they didn't want to offend the man that just promised their eldest son a job at his fucking farm. Mm-hmm. They were in a weird situation. Like They're like, if I say no to them, then they're going to be like, like, no job. Yeah, I can't say like, oh, thank you for giving my oldest son a job. But I don't trust you with my daughter. That's kind of, it's it's the right thing to say. It really is. Yeah. But it makes you kind of look like a dick. You know what I mean? It makes you kind of look like, like you ungrateful pieces of shit. So Mrs. Bud, obviously, she hesitated. But then Mr. Bud, he cleared his throat and he told Delia, just let the girl go. It'll be good for her to get out and play with children. She's always in this. She's like, she's always locked up in here. And this apartment is, he's like, it's just a dungeon. Just let her go out. She's going to play with friends. He's going to be back by nine. He has to, he has to be back. because He's picking up the boys. Like, what's the worst that could happen? And he jinxed himself real fucking bad. The worst that can happen. So then Fish, without hesitation, he told him the party was going to be in a nice building. On 137th Street and Columbus Avenue. Mm-hmm. So they felt at ease because that's a nice neighborhood. But I, I didn't know this, obviously, because I'm not from New York. Mm-hmm. But apparently, New Yorkers think that they know everything about everything when it comes to New York. I don't know if this is true. Any New Yorkers, let me know if this is true. If you guys think you guys know everything about everything when it comes to New York. And this kind of thinking came and bit the buds in the ass. 
because even though both of the parents they lived their whole lives in Manhattan and they knew the area they're like, all right, it's a nice neighborhood. What they didn't know was that Columbus Avenue ended at 110th Street. So there is no 137. Fish gave them a fake address. Oh, no. But by the time they found out, it was way too late. Too late, bro. Grace was gone. So Mrs. Bud helped Grace with her coat. She had a little brown leather bag that she clutched, and she was looking like a picture-perfect little girl. The Buds escorted them out of the building and followed them out, watching Fish and Grace walk up the street, turn the corner, and then disappear. How excited was a sick fuck? It's like, it's knowing working. that he was getting away with this. It's working. A few of Grace's friends from the block were outside playing, and they started making jokes and were roasting her. And Grace, like a little kid, she just turned around and stuck out her tongue and just kept walking. So then they turned the corner and Fish went back to the new cellar and got back the little bundle he left behind. And he put the bundle underneath his arm with Grace holding his other hand. Wrapped inside the bundle was a butcher's knife, a meat cleaver, and a small handsaw that Fish would later come to call his implements of evil. So it was now Monday morning, and a few detectives and a lieutenant had shown up at the request of the Buds, who, after a whole night of waiting and not being able to sleep, sent Bud to the police station. Lieutenant Samuel Dribben, Detective Jerry Mayer, James McGee, and James Murphy, all four of them arrived at the apartment and immediately got to ask the now distraught Buds about their visitor, Frank Howard. They let them know what happened, and after they let Lieutenant Driven know of the location of the party, he let them know that 137th Street and Columbus Avenue, that was a fake address. Like, they got played. That doesn't exist. And that news hit the buds like a ton of bricks, immediately making them sick to their stomachs. Maybe they were hope. Maybe they thought like, oh, he 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 got held up at the party. He's drunk. Yeah, they give himself false hope. Yeah, like, oh, maybe something something probably happened or something at the party. And then when they found out that that address doesn't exist. Hey, bro. But the lieutenant did what he could to try and comfort the buds. And he ordered McGee and Mayer to start roaming the neighborhood and see what they could find. While Murphy took Edward and Willie back to the station to go through their rogues gallery, which is, you know, just a roller decks of bad guys, and see if any of them looked like Frank Howard. So the lieutenant asked for a few more hands and sent one detective to the DMV to check for records of Frank Howard's address and another detective to trace the Western Union message that Frank had sent to Edward on Saturday. Hmm. Just then, Mr. Bud remembered something. He remembered Frank asking for the telegram and then just putting it back into his coat pockets. Remember, they thought it was weird that he did it, but they're like, all right. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. It's his, I guess. And then he started beating himself over it. But nobody could have known. Nobody would have suspected what this fucking asshole was doing. So they were just like, it's weird, but okay. So news broke on Tuesday, June 5th. Hunt for man and child he took to party. And for the next few weeks, the public was going through a wave of deja vu. Since the story of the missing Grace was eerie similar to the kidnapping of Billy Gaffney that occurred exactly a year before. It was identical. From the clues that led to nowhere, the suspects being taken into custody but immediately being released... To many people trying to help with information, 
the dickheads pulling pranks on the authorities. It was also gross the way the tabloids handled the case of Grace, making every article a cliffhanger with the articles ending with follow tomorrow to learn more or like the search for little Grace Bud continues. Like they were sensationalizing the shit out of this Grace case. So plus the differences in the narratives and those involved made it really easy for the tabloids to sell this juicy story. Because here we have a monster who played himself off as an innocent old man, trusting parents who were tricked by the fucking devil himself to hand off their cute little girl in a communion dress, and a victim whose name played up her innocence, Grace. When you think of Grace, when you think of a little girl named Grace, you think of the most innocent little girl. So with the assistance of Grace's older brothers, Albert and Ed, the police, they started to look everywhere. Cellars, rooftops, alleys, empty parking lots, lodging houses, movie theaters, subway stations, garages, anywhere they could think of looking, they looked. They couldn't find a trace of the missing Grace, nor of Frank Howard. So while the local police searched the neighborhood, a few detectives decided to go up to Farmdale, Long Island, and see what they could dig up on Frank Howard, but that also ended up with Dick. But in New Jersey, another Farmdale turned up a lead. Because if you can remember, when Frank sent the telegram, he said he had been in New Jersey. So Lieutenant Driven sent Mayer over to the little town, and sure enough, he discovered that a man named Frank Howard had lived in Farmdale 15 years ago. And according to everyone he questioned, he fit the description of the Frank Howard they were looking for. This old, short man, frail, bodied, gray mustache. Like, yeah, 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 that's Frank Howard. He also had a chicken farm. And Mayer was able to obtain the name of a relative who, was, who had moved to Weehawken. So off Mayer went, and he met up with Frank Howard's niece. Mrs. Birdsall, and she told the detective that her uncle, yeah, he did live in Farmdale until 1913 when he sold his farm and moved to Chicago. But this lead also turned to Dick because she told him that her uncle had been dead for 10 years. Oh, mm -mm -mm. So Tuesday night came, it's June 5th, and the police received a call from one of the Bud's neighbors named Juliet Smith. She called and said that an elderly man had just tried to lure her 10-year-old son, Arthur, into an apartment complex. So the police arrived on the scene and arrested 59-year-old Joseph slowly. While being interrogated, the police figured out that Joseph had no idea of the Bud's case and he only admitted to talking to the boy, not putting a finger on Arthur. So he was quickly marked off as a suspect and the charges against him were dropped in court. But Juliet Smith, she wasn't the only mother on edge. Every mother was on the lookout and police heard the same story over and over and over again with several of them swearing that they had seen Frank Howard with their own two eyes. They always saw an old man with gray hair and a gray mustache just loitering around. This was common after serious crimes, and even though the police knew that many of these sightings were all going to be bullshit, they still had to follow every lead. And they couldn't just ignore these reports with Grace still being missing. You know, so the police started working under the assumption that this, the Bud's case, was the work of a criminal who planned and executed her, her kidnapping. You know, and this theory of theirs kind of made sense with a few of the testimonies of several people who lived on Grace's block, the last ones to see her alive the day she disappeared. So the police were working on the assumption, look, this dude, he's a pro. This wasn't his first time. 
he had this planned out and his plan was executed. Because remember the children who were roasting Grace as she walked out of the building? Well, according to them, Fish wasn't alone. They saw another man. All four children told the police that when Grace and Fish reached the corner, Grace had been put inside a car that was already waiting for Fish. Mm. It was a blue sedan with Pennsylvania plates, which then took them down 9th Avenue with a young man being the driver of the car. Hmm. Another witness who had been working at a candy store on the corner of 9th Avenue saw the same thing the children saw. So June 6th, the following Wednesday, investigators had learned of the existence of another accomplice. This one, a woman. Hmm. Mrs. Harold DeMille, a Brooklyn mother, told police that around 6.30 on Sunday evening, she had gone inside her house to start prepping dinner. And she left her four-year-old son, Desmond, just chilling outside on his tricycle, dipping up and down the block. As soon as she went inside, a mysterious couple, an elderly man in a dark business suit, and a well-dressed lady walked up to Desmond, and after a brief moment, just started walking off with him. This what? couple just walked up to Desmond, who was w- dipping in his fucking tricycle. They spoke to him for a few moments, and then they just walked off with Desmond. What? Luckily, Mrs. DeMille's had a neighbor run into her apartment and told her that a couple was walking away with her son, Desmond. Hey, bro, you know these people? Hey, yo, your son's being stolen, son! She wa- um, Desmond, Desmond gone. So, Mrs. So Mrs. <laughs> we can't rid of Desmond? <laughs> nah. So Mrs. Demio, try, try to make some quick change. Damn. So Mrs. Demio, after she's like, "Oh fuck!" and she booked it, and she caught up with the couple, and she snatched her baby from them, and she started talking her shit, and the couple tried to calm her down, but by trying to convince her that they were only taking Desmond to buy a new bell for his tricycle. Like, what the fuck were you guys doing? And they're like, whoa, relax. We weren't doing anything. Bell smell. Yeah, we're going to buy a bell. Desmond said he needed a little bell. We're like, cool, fuck you. We know where to get a bell. Oh, you can get a bell. Can I go? You guys get the bell? Yeah, let's go get the bell. And they want to go get the bell. That was the story. No, but that was the story. That was the story they were were telling her. And Mrs. DeVille, she started shouting. She was, I liked her interaction with him because she was like, where? Where, huh? Where the fuck are you going to buy the bell? It's Sunday. Everything's closed. Tell me, where the fuck were you going to buy this bell? <laughs> so she's telling them, like, where? Where the fuck are you going to buy? Everything's closed. Look around you. Where are you going to buy this bell? And the couple just kind of looked. They were, like, trying uh, uh, uh. It was like that one video of the black kid when he's talking. He's like, um, it's that motherfucking, um, um, it's that, um, uh, motherfucking. That's what they were doing. And then they just mid, like, dip it. like yeah, yeah, like, mid, like, mid conversation, they just stopped talking and just ran, and just ran off in the direction they were going. Remember, this was Sunday. And it wasn't until Tuesday that the bus story made the news. So, Mrs. DeVille thought that maybe she had rescued her own son from the same people that took Grace. Mm. So, she contacted the police immediately and provided them with a description of the couple. So, now the police force and the detectives went from searching for a single kidnapper to possibly a group of child snatchers that were operating in their town. So Grace's kidnapping, that was big news. And like clockwork, all the attention the case drew, it wasn't all good. They started getting calls and letters from people just rambling on and on and on to letters taunting the police. It was all bad. And, you know, it wasn't out of the ordinary for the buds to be receiving dozens of letters a day. With a few being fucking horrible letters. Like, for example, 
My dear Mr. and Mrs. Bud, your child is going to a funeral. I still got her. Howard. This is the kind of shit that we get in the mail. Damn, bro. Come on, don't fuck with that. So by Thursday morning, June 7th, 1,000 flyers containing information on the Grace Bud case had been mailed to police departments all over the United States and Canada. And for the following weeks, if you were an old man on a stroll with your granddaughter, you better have been careful because people were not hesitant into confusing you for Frank Howard, the child snatcher. And there were hundreds of these reports with all of them being ended up being false accusations. But there was one solid lead which the police got before entering the second week, second week of the investigation. So after the flyers went out, mm. people were like, watch out for this old man. Watch out for this old man. His name is Frank Howard. Gray mustache. He's always wearing a suit. And he's always hunched over. Watch out for that man. That's everybody's grandfather. Yeah. Especially if like you're oh, white. Like, your, your white grandfather's going to have... He's going to wear a suit because he's from a different era and he has white hair. And he's walking with his granddaughter and there were fucking reports of just mobs. Just left or right, huh? Just, and like there were stories of like this old man who's chilling at a park. People were like standoffish just looking at him. And then he's looking at the mob that's looking at him. And then he's looking at his granddaughter scared. And then his granddaughter's looking at him scared. But the mob is seeing the little girl scared, staring at the old man scared. And, the, and everyone's just like, what the fuck? And then the old man's just like, fuck Shut it, down. I'm just going to leave. And leaves his granddaughter at the park. He's like, fuck this, I'm going to die if I take her. So he leaves his granddaughter at the park. The parents have to come and pick her up. Yeah. And then the parents, and the mob's like, there was an old man here waiting for him. And they're like, yeah, that's my father. They're like, oh, all right. That happened he a lot. Shit. That happened fucking a lot. I'd be stressed out if I was an old man. Every old man for like weeks, they were just like, they were enemy number one. You know, but like I said, there was one solid lead which the police got before entering the second week of investigation. Detectives Mayer and McGee managed to find the man that sold the bucket to Fish. Remember the bucket he filled with? With all the tools. With all the, the, the bucket he the pawned cheese. off. Yeah, that said, here's a gift from my farm. And they, they found him and they were also able to trace the source of where Fish sent his telegram the Western Union office on 3rd Avenue and 103rd Street in Manhattan. The man who sold the pail to fish was on 100th Street and 2nd Avenue. So everything was super close in, like everything was close in one little area. Yeah. So which Walking suggested, distance. yeah, that their man, Frank Howard, he was either a resident of East Harlem or at least came by here a lot. Mm. So they went to every store, every rooming house, barbershop, newsstand, restaurants, Every new anywhere fish might be known, they went and asked if they knew who Howard Fish was. And while this was going on, Captain John Ayers of the Missing Persons Bureau, he received a copy of the telegram. And according to him, their Frank Howard, he wasn't a farmer. In fact, this man was a lot smarter than he let on, considering how quick, clear, and precise his message was to Ed. And this was important to the case. But nobody was really surprised. Everyone kind of assumed that whoever took Grace, they were lying. They were lying on who they were. And the police finding out something Howard had mentioned being a lie, it was like, yeah, we kind of assume he lied about everything. So the fact that the, that the dude's like, yeah, he wasn't a farmer, they're like, all right, we kind of... We kind of knew that, yeah, yeah. Like, we were kind of, yeah, like, <clears throat> like, all right, we're not surprised that he lied about being a farmer. 
So while shit was hitting the fan in New York City, Driven had his connections to Pennsylvania look for that blue sedan that many saw on the scene of Grace's disappearances. Mm. But those investigators in Pennsylvania, they were having fucking their troubles too. Because it's kind of hard to go off. There's a blue sedan. It was kind of dirty. And that Pennsylvania plates. Can you look for that car? Yeah, sure. Right away. They're like, what the fuck? It's like finding the old man with the gray hairs. Yeah, like, what Like what the fuck you mean? Go, I can go outside and point at three fucking dirty blue sedans. <laughs> the fuck you mean? Police kept getting letters and tips with even a few neighbors. A week after the investigation, contacting the police to let them know that on the evening... Before Grace disappeared, they remember a blue sedan with Pennsylvania plates just driving around as of looking for something. And that the car's driver was a young man in a brown suit. Hmm. So the police are getting information from all directions. It's three persons, it's two persons. He didn't walk. It was in a blue car. The blue car was being driven. There's a fucking clown. Being driven like everywhere. So they put a stakeout vehicle in front of the bud's apartment, but that proved to be a waste of time. All while the detectives and the police kept getting conflicting reports that were flooding the mail. Like, for example, on June 14th, the buds received this letter. Dear Mrs. Bud, I have Grace. She is safe and sound. She is happy in her new home and is not at all homesick. I will see to it that Grace has proper schooling. She has been given a cat and a pet canary. She calls a canary Bill. I am a keen student of human nature. That is why I was attracted to Grace. She seemed like a girl who would appreciate nice surroundings and a real nice home. I drove with Grace past your house in an automobile several days ago. I saw several people standing in the front of your home. I did not stop as it looked like they were waiting for me. I will see to it in the future that some arrangements are made so Grace will be able to visit you for a short time. J.F.H. So that's the what? Now what sick fucks would do that? Damn, man. So. Yeah, I have your daughter. She doesn't want to go home. She likes it here. She got pets. I heard you had a shitty home. I don't have a shitty home. I have a nice home. I, re- I have a cat and I have a canary. Do you have a cat or a canary? Do you have a cat or a canary? <laughs> is it name? Is it called Bill? No. I got a bill. I got a Do bill. you have a bill? Not those type of bills. For who's like, hey, I have Grace. She has a bird. She good. I got a Grace. You got a Grace? Oh, Oof. damn. Too much, bro. Too Oof. much, bro. So the police and the detectives, they believe that this letter, it might be authentic. But that didn't last. As later that same day, the police received a report coming from Brooklyn from a man named Nicola Grimaldi. And according to Grimaldi, he had gone down in the cellar of his building at 5.30 that same morning and was surprised to have found a young girl asleep on a potato sack turned bed. Hmm. He woke the little girl by asking her what she was doing there. And she didn't answer him. So he told the girl to stay and wait for him while he went to go get his wife. But the little girl just screamed at him to not tell her brother. Like, look, I'll be back. I'm just going to get my wife. She's like, don't tell my brother. And then she just booked up the cellar and just disappeared into the dark street. So now you can see why the police were confused when it came to searching for Grace. They were being stretched out in every direction. And not only that, but if the letter from the mysterious JFH was true, 
then Grace was living her best life. She had a fucking canary. She was good. But on the other hand, if Grimaldi was right, then Grace was now, you know, she belonged to the streets. She's from the streets, son. So while this was sending the police in a circle, a few of the detectives, they were starting to believe that maybe Grace was no longer alive. Oh, boy. The buds were living in the darkest timelines. But the tabloids and press couldn't have been any happier. They had the perfect story to have the papers fly off the shelves. Here we have a simple, uneducated woman who would speak to anyone and everyone she could as any possible publicity could help the police find her child. Mrs. Bud would pose for the camera, clearing tears from her eyes, begging for help to finding her little daughter. Her state of mind was bouncing from hopeful to certain her daughter was dead. It was a huge mental strain on her. First, she thought that maybe Grace was kidnapped for some ransom money, but that quickly went out the window considering how poor they were. Then she started to believe that Grace was dead, that she was just waiting for the police to find her body. Lieutenant Driven tried his best to keep her spirits up, reassuring her that he will find Grace and had her safely to her. But it wasn't until the second week of Grace's disappearance that she had another major mood swing. And according to her, she experienced a premonition. She felt Grace was still alive. She couldn't explain it, but she was sure that Grace was alive. She had this premonition and you found faith in her finding her daughter safe around the same time that the police and the detectives were starting to kick around the idea that maybe Grace wasn't alive anymore. And that Mrs. Bud's earlier belief might have been right all along. Hmm. So Mrs. Bud's interaction with the media came from a place of good. She would talk to anybody and everybody. She would pose for pictures, always holding up a picture of Grace. All in the hopes that somebody somewhere might read the paper or see your picture. and might be able to help them find her little girl. But as she goes to find out, the world eventually moved on. We got bored. By the end of June, any mentions of Grace or her case, they had largely disappeared from the city's newspapers. Grace was no longer the front page story. Instead, she was replaced over and over and over again by the world's current events. Whether it was Amelia Earnhardt flying from Boston to South Wales to covering the crash of the ace of Mexican flyers, a Mexican monoplane um, pilot who was struck by a bolt of lightning and crashed in New Jersey. The world continued to move forward while the buds were stuck in their grueling nightmare. July was a busy month as well. Whether it was the newspapers covering the assassination of Mexican President Alvaro Obregón or covering the murder of an innocent young black boy named Robert Powell who was snatched from his bed one night and was lynched under a bridge the morning of a nomination in Texas where a lot of delegates and party leaders were arriving. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the fucking creator of Sherlock Holmes, he ironically appeared at a trial to testify on the legitimacy of spiritualism. 
And then not to mention that, on July 10th, the stock market suffered a decline that was about to usher in another depression. Mm. So the newspaper cycles, they moved on from Grace. They had so many other shit to talk about. And by July 28th, Grace and her case had been out of the public's eye that many had forgotten about the missing little girl. So there must have been a kick in the teeth to anyone who had forgotten about Grace to wake up on August 2nd to read the newspaper with this headline. The case of Grace Bud has finally been solved. People were like, oh shit, that's right. She was missing, huh? So remember, thousands of flyers that were passed around regarding the Grace kidnapping. And one of these flyers managed to make its way to a prison farm in Florida. The warden, J.S. Blitch, he received the copy and a description of Frank Howard made him think of a man who had been released a few years ago that resembled Frank Howard, an inmate who was released in 1926 and served four years for embezzlement. Mm. Albert E. Corthell, that was the inmate's name, but he also had a shitload of aliases, a dickload of them. Charles Parker, A. Edward Drawfell, J.W. West, those just to name his favorite ones. He, too, was a frail-bodied, gray-haired con artist that spent the majority of his adult life in and out of prison and served for everything from forgery to grand theft auto. He was a smart guy, he was a very smooth talker, and he knew a lot about medicine for for whatever reason, he just knew a lot about medicine. Mm. So much so that during one of his prison stints, he worked as an orderly in the prison hospital. He has been able to pass himself off as a Harvard-educated physician from Petersburg to a sly businessman from Manhattan. Even though Albert never had anything to do with kidnapping or actually harming people, his M.O. of hiring young girls to pose as his daughter might be why he have stolen Grace. And the more the warden thought about Albert and the Grace Bud case, the more he was sure that Albert and Frank were the same guy. After all, if anybody was was to be able to pull a backstory about owning a farm and doing business in New Jersey out of their ass, it was going to be Albert. So the warden pulled Albert's file and forwarded it to the New York City Police, as well as the most recent mugshot. Another thing we're going to find out that's fucking weird about the story, there's so many Alberts in this fucking story. Whether it's Albert Bud, the dad, Albert E. Corthell, the, the main, one of the main suspects, and then we have fucking Albert Fish. We, there's so many Alberts, so I'm going to try my best to start not to not say Albert. And if I do say Albert, it's because I'm talking about Albert Fish. And at this point, they still didn't know his actual name. No, as, as far as they no. know. Yeah, no idea. Frank Howard. Dang. It's just Frank Howard. Frank. Motherfucking Frank. So a few days later, the New York commissioner received the file and added Corthell's mugshot to the rogues gallery. He received a phone call from a William L. Vetter, the superintendent of the Brooklyn branch of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. He had a story that might be of interest to the police, that just a few days before the Grace Bud kidnapping, he was visited by a well-dressed and soft-spoken, gray-haired old man seeking to adopt a six-year-old girl. Vetter thought the man was acting a little suspicious, so he set him up for a second interview. But the man just never showed up. Mm. Hmm. So Vetter, he was invited down to the precinct and was asked to go through the pictures of suspects and see if he recognized anybody. 
And he pointed to the man that he thought visited him that day. It was the monk shot, Albert E. Corthell. Oh, boy. So the lieutenant was happy. For the first time in weeks, he finally caught a break, and he didn't have to fake his optimism. They brought down the Bud family and were shown the picture of Albert E. Corthell. Mr. Bud, he had a, you know, he had a hard time recognizing anything because of his fucking glass eye. And Ed, he wasn't sure. He's like, oh, may- maybe. But Mrs. Bud, she was adamant. The man in the picture was Frank Howard, the devil who stole her baby. She said she'd recognize that monster's face anywhere. So on August 3rd, a bench warrant for the arrest of Albert E. Corthell was put into effect. And then suddenly things were looking up. The missing, person, the missing person's bureau could finally hang their heads on something after not being able to solve last year's Billy Gaffney's disappearance. The buds were struck with a new sense of hope that they would soon recover grace safe and sound. After all, Corthell, he was no murderer, remember. He was just a con man. And if the warden was correct about the reason why Corthell would have taken Grace, then Grace should not only still be alive, but she had to be taken well care of if she was supposed to play his daughter. If only they knew. So finally, after two months of eating dick over and over and over again in search of Grace, everything was going right for everybody. The police had the suspect and warrant out for the arrest. The buds had no fear of Grace being hurt, as the suspect's M.O. didn't give any indication of that. It was only a matter of days before Corthell would be in police custody and Grace and her parents' loving arms. So now it's been two years since that day where the police made the announcement that they were hot on the trail of Corthell. He was as slippery as they came. So as not to fuck it up. One of the detectives assigned to the Bud's case. Was a man named William F. King. This is two. We're two years removed from when Grace has disappeared. Mm-hmm. We're still searching for her. Oh, they're still searching for her. And now yeah. they put this detective. William F. King on the case. Now King. He was a no-nonsense motherfucker. He was that prototypical badass detective we all wish would take over our case. He was a former fireman who became a cop in 1907, and he fought in World War One. King, he was that big dick city detective in the trench coat that nobody messed with. Fucking from, like, the noir fucking Yeah, age. that's, that's him. Yeah, 1976, I'm out there smoking cigarette, and there she came. Blonde yeah. hair, big tits, nice ass. And, you know, no, and, <laughs> and he was one of those and he was one of the few detectives that was sent to go follow the trail of Corthell okay. they're, like, they're like look we need somebody who's good at this King you're one of our best go fetch him King you're the king go be king <laughs> go king some shit during the last two years the police would uncover clues that would send everybody feeling good about the case before leading to another dead end like for example <sighs> in the early spring of 1930 the Buds received a strange packet, and by this time, they had moved on to an even smaller, shittier apartment a few doors down. The packet inside had a copy of the Christian Science Monitor magazine dated March 21st, you know, which was random, and whatever, it didn't really have any significance to the Buds or the case. They're like, alright, why the fuck did we receive this, but whatever, until Ms. Bud saw the address of the packet. It was penciled, 
and it looked almost identical to Grace's writing. Oh. So she ran into Grace's room, grabbed some of Grace's old journals and compared the two, and she thought they were similar enough. So she fucked off to the precinct to hand it over the packet to King, who by this point was now the primary investigator of the case. King examined the package, and on the envelope, a small mailing label had the name Herbert J. Sherry, U.S. Navy Portsmouth, written on it. Mm. So then King so then King and Mayor took a train for New Hampshire. Like, all right, we're going to go to Portsmouth, and we're going to try to find who the fuck this Herbert J. Sherry was. Yeah. Mrs. Budd, in the meanwhile, met with reporters and told, told them the good news. She claimed that she was 100% sure that the writing was done by Grace. So while she's talking to reporters, sure of, a, sure of a good lead, King and Mayer were coming to a very different conclusion. They both knew this Sherry wasn't going to be their man. Because if he really was in the Navy, that means he was too young to be Frank Howard. But they were hoping that at the very least, he could be the driver. Face the third face of suspect in the case. That all right, we know this guy's not Frank Howard because he's still in the Navy, but hopefully he was the driver, which means we're gonna be one step closer into catching Frank Howard. But as soon as they arrived, they discovered that Sherry he was currently doing time in the brig for desertion, and that he was actually in captivity during the time of Grace's disappearance. So they're like, all right, he's not our guy, and he he's just useless. So they stayed to try and find the person who sent the package to the Buds. And they couldn't find him. But as soon as they returned to New York, a police graphologist told them that the writings were not of the same person and could not have been possibly written by Grace. Who and why they sent this package? They never found out. And it's still a mystery to this day. So they have no idea. Why they sent it? Who sent it? For what reason? It was just... What was in the package? It was just a magazine. It's a magazine. Yeah, but on the, the magazine. It was just the magazine inside an envelope, but on the envelope it had a little label on it. Mm. And the label was written in pencil. And they're like, Oh, it's Grace's writing. It's Bud's thought it was yeah, Grace's writing. That's fucking out. weird. So several months have now passed since this package lead, and King was on the trail of another lead. He was traveling to Miami on the trail of a man who called himself Charles Howard. Charles was a fifty year old Floridian man who married a New York City woman in May. Right after the wedding, the couple returned to New York City. Exactly eight days after moving into their New York City apartment, Charles disappeared with $2,800 of his wife's cash and a 1000 of her aunt's, which is a little less than 57000 in 2021. That's a lot of fucking cash if you ask me, motherfucker. The bride went to the police and made a police report and also suggested he might also be the Howard fella they were searching for. The one who kidnapped little Grace Bud. And it made sense. After all, Charles, Charles Howard could be another alias he could have used. And stealing this lady's money and dipping was his M.O. So that's their next So that's like their next lead. It was just this lady said, look, I married this dude from Florida. We got an apartment. Eight days later, he fucked off with my money. And they're like, okay. Also, he might also he might be Frank Howard. What? Yeah, he might be Frank Howard. And they're, and they're thinking about it. They're like, I mean, he could be. If 
If Frank Howard is Corthell, Corthell's is all about stealing money. And if he did steal fifty thousand, fifty-seven thousand dollars of your cash, he might be our guy. All right, we'll he might be our guy. All right, like, all right, we'll put a man on. So, they, so King's like, all right, I'm gonna figure it out. So as soon as King got to Miami, he managed to find Charles Howard almost immediately. And on June 10th, Charles was arrested in Belvedere, Florida. And he matched the description of Grace Bud's kidnapper. Frail, gray, grizzled old man. <laughs> God damn. Except there was one problem. Another one. Charles Howard was not Albert Corthell. Charles Howard was Charles Howard. That was his real name. It wasn't an alias. It wasn't trick. Yeah. Just uh-huh. like that, that was his real name. Uh, it's not a trick. It's not a trap. But King was still hoping he was the guy. So they sent him upstate, and he was in a lineup where Mrs. Bud and Willie Corman, Ed's best friend, who was now 20, they were to view the suspects. Willie couldn't identify the man, but Mrs. Bud pointed to Charles and said, he looks like the man. He looks like the man that took Grace Bud. Oh, boy. But it turned out that Howard he was able to prove his innocence in the Bud's case. As he was living in a completely different part of the country when she disappeared. Mm-hmm. But he remained locked up for larceny, but was cleared as a suspect from the Butts case. And it was starting to become obvious that Mrs. Bud's memory might be waning on her. Because she would misidentify man after man after man, thinking they were the captive of her child. Shit, she even once pointed the finger at a cop. Who had been recruited just to fill out the lineup because they didn't have enough suspects. Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, we need seven people in this room. Hey, John, get in there. Just take off your uniform. She's like, that's him. That's the guy that stole my fucking daughter. And they're like, oh, this bitch. She's like, I haven't seen this guy before. And this wouldn't be the only time that an, that an angry wife would lead the investigators on a wild ride that ultimately helped sell more newspapers and get them closer to solving the case. It involved a bitter wife who had been separated from her husband for some time now. And on September 3rd, she went to the police station to inform them that her estranged husband was the man who kidnapped Grace Bud. Her name was Jesse Pope, and she was accusing her 67-year-old husband, Charles Edward Pope, of being Albert E. Corthell, a.k.a. Frank Howard. She had a wild story where she explained that she had been separated from her husband for a while. She was living with her sister in New Jersey. And then on the day of Grace's disappearance, which was June 3rd, 1928, she received a telegram from a Western Union boy with a message from her husband asking her to meet him at the corner of High and Smith, which was just a few blocks away. She's like, what the fuck does this asshole want? All right, fuck it. Another one. I'm just going to go see what the fuck he wants. So she goes off and she's what her husband wanted. And when she showed up, waiting for her was her husband and a brown-haired girl all dressed up. Hmm. Her husband asked her if she could take care of the little girl for just a few days. Look, I'm busy. I'm going to do something. Can you take care of the little girl? And she told him, go fuck yourself. I don't want to be involved in anything you're doing. And just go fuck off. So they argued a little back and forth. And he and she then. Her husband took off with the little girl. Then she got really sick. And by the time she had recovered, the Grace story had disappeared from the newspaper. And she had forgotten all about her encounter with her husband and the little girl. But it wasn't until she read about Charles Howard's account that it all came rushing back to her. 
she kept thinking about the little girl and how she gave her that look that she would never forget. So she said, fuck it, and went to go visit the buds. Where she was shown, where she was shown a picture of Grace. And as soon as she laid eyes on the picture, she recognized her as the little girl her husband had been walking around with. Ooh. Oh, shit. And the detectives, they believed their story, and they were so impressed with the story. The very next day, Charles Edward Pope was arrested on charges for the kidnapping of Grace Budd. So they called Mrs. Budd down to the precinct to see if she recognized anybody. And once again, like clockwork, she looked at Mr. Pope and pointed at him. That's a man who stole my grace. The next morning, the papers ran wild and celebrated with the news. Bud kidnapped suspect captured after two years. So a mob of neighbors and friends of the Buds stormed the station, which quickly, which quickly turned into a fucking angry mob. What? The Pope kept telling the people he was innocent while his wife was talking to the reporters that her husband, Pope, was a dangerous man who was once confined to a mental institution in New York. So her husband's chained, he's fucking locked up. He's like, he wasn't me. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. While his wife's outside, like, yeah, this dude's dangerous. He's, he's a horrible man. He was even locked up in a men's institution a few years ago. And it was true. He had been locked up in Gowanda for a few months. But he was there because of her. Oh. All because she wanted to get some money his father had left for him. She'll go, digger. So he was grilled at the police headquarters, and Pope explained that his father left him 30000 which was almost $400,000 in today's money after his father passed away. He said that he had been trained as an engineer, just like his father, but because of the depression, the only work he had been able to find was being the superintendent of an important building on Madison Avenue, where he lived with his sister, which he also supported, which is where he was arrested. So the police went and they spoke to his sister, and she said the very same story, and added that his brother and his wife had been married for over 40 years. But they have broken up and gotten back together. She's like, at least 30 times. Throughout. She's like, they're always, they're always breaking up and getting back together. Breaking up and getting back together. Falling off, falling off. She told him that his wife was taking advantage of him. And she would always take advantage of him. Because even though he was a hard worker, he didn't like confrontation. So mm. he would just let himself. She would argue with him. Okay, okay, that's fine. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. It's fine. It's fine. They would always break up and get back together. Break up and get back together. So King began investigating the pop story. And he discovered that everything, Char- everything that Charles and his sisters were saying was true. He had no police record. And he was institutionalized for eight months. But he was released because of his mild nature. And he did not have a violent or dangerous bone in his body. And it was here that King and the other detectives were starting to realize that they might have blown the load a little too soon. That Charles Pope maybe was not the man responsible for Grace's disappearance. But he was just a man stuck in a shitty-ass marriage. And even though he was ID'd as the culprit by Mrs. Budd, she proved over and over and over again that she was a dick witness. So from the second Pope was brought into custody, every city paper had been running stories about how finally, after two years... The grace bud was going to was going to come to an end. And after Pope's bail was set at twenty five thousand, which is a quarter of a million dollars in today's money, mm-hmm. 
many in the press started to learn about King's and the other detectives' doubts about Pope being guilty. But as King was thinking this, things took a really shitty turn for Mr. Pope. During his interview, they found out he owned a farmhouse, an acre of land in Shandaki, New York. Oh, God damn. So they got a search warrant, and the next morning, the detectives went to the farmhouse. As the detectives arrived, they arrived to a two-story farmhouse, and they started going to work, and they searched every inch of the place, and they found nothing out of the ordinary. So thinking this was another bullshit lead, the lieutenant was about to leave. And then he saw a small garage at the back of the farmhouse. He's like, fuck it. Might as well just look in there just so we, just so we could say we fucking looked everywhere and don't have to come back. Inside the little farmhouse was a car. But what caught the lieutenant's eyes were three small trunks lined up behind the car. These big ass trunks, these huge cases. So they open the first one and they find nothing but regular stuff. Papers, envelopes, bills, nothing out of the ordinary. They open the second one, the exact same thing. But as soon as they open the third trunk, pictures and postcards, you know, they littered the trunk. So the lieutenant started looking through one of the letters and it discovered that they had all been written by women. And they were all personal mushy letters. They were like love letters. Mm-hmm. He's like, what the, f- what the fuck is What's this? What's doing here? Yeah, they're like, what the fuck is this? But underneath the letters, they found three strands of deep brown hair tied with a white ribbon that looked like it would belong to the head of a young woman. The news of the fine hit New York and the press, they fucking ran with the story. Suddenly, Pope, he didn't seem so innocent anymore. And he quickly became enemy number one. So thanks to the discovery of the hair... State troopers arrived to the farmhouse and started to dig up the entire yard to see if they could find any more clues. The detectives continued to search the trunk and tucked underneath of old clothes was a box of ammunition and a pair of a child's white stocking with heels. Similar, according to Mrs. Bud, to those that Grace was wearing the day she disappeared. So by Wednesday, things were not looking good for Mr. Pope. And if that wasn't bad enough, the police found a file of letters covering every year from 1891 through 1929. The only year where there was no letters for was the year of 1928, the year Grace went missing. Then while all this was going on, the story of a radio mechanic hit the press Albert H. Kleiner was his name I reached the front door without seeing anyone I went around to the back and while I was there I heard the sound of wood splitting I pushed the door open and went inside what I saw was Mr. Pope in his bedroom Floorboards were ripped up and I saw several piles of dirt. Pope turned to me and turned red in the face and yelled at me to get out. He forced me to leave without fixing his radio. Eventually came back and did the job though. So they checked out his story and the troopers found out that the ground underneath Pope's bed 
did show signs of digging. So they look, we're going to dig it up and see what we can find. They were kind of hoping what they would find would be the remains of Grace. So while the press and everybody around wanted to convict Pope, Mr. Pope's lawyer, he cross-examined his wife, Mrs. Pope, to prove to be a fucking work of art. She admitted to him that, yes, she did have her husband admitted to a mental hospital to try and get the money that he was owed. And that even trying to, and that, yes, that even when she was trying to remember the clothes of the little girl, what the little girl was wearing when she saw her husband with him, she said the girl was wearing a blue dress with a blue hat with a red band, which was nothing that Grace was wearing when she disappeared. Hmm. So, like, all right, you you lied about your husband being crazy. You said you did it because you wanted money. And then you said you saw your husband with a little girl who was wearing completely different clothes than what she was actually wearing. And Mrs. Bud also admitted that the reason she may have chosen and picked out Mr. Pope was because Mrs. Pope, she did a fucking phenomenal job in describing her husband that Mrs. Bud instantly recognized him from that. And then finally, Mr. Pope, he had an explanation for fucking everything that was going on, everything that they found, for fucking everything. And it was finally his turn to speak. He said that the stockings and clothing and all the other children items he was being crucified for, they were all hand-me-downs from the tenants of the building he worked at. Remember, he worked at a building as a super as a superintendent. Yeah. So every all the clothes that were that he had in his farm were clothes that the, his tenants didn't want anymore. Hey, you want the clothes? Yeah, I'll take them. And the reason he was taking them is because he was collecting them for his son, who had five children of his own. So there's the depression, oh, and the dad's like, "Yeah, I'll take all these extra clothes. I'll leave them in my old house. I'll and whenever I'm not giving them to my son." Yeah, makes sense. And as for the hair, we can attest to this. This was a family keepsake. That's fucking what my mom did with our with our fucking mullets when we were little kids. They cut our mullets off. We had when we were little kids. We you had guys have hair. mullets. Yeah, we had mullets, bro. Come on, bro. We're from the my parents are from the rancho. So, sí, señor. So they let so they let our hair grow. And then when we were baptized, or I forgot what the fuck it was, they cut our mullets off. They put it, well, they put it, they tied our mullets into a ponytail, uh-huh. and they cut our ponytail. And the mom just kept it. I think she still has it. Looking back at it, it's that's weird. pretty fucking weird. It's weird. Yeah, but that's what that's that, some voodoo shit, bro. But that's what Pope did. Mom, it looked weird as shit because he had his son's hair inside the trunk and with a the bunch case of that's with, going on, a bunch of clothes. Yeah, of course. And then his wife is just saying, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah. fuck him." <laughs> So even with the wife's motives clear as day and Mr. Pope's having an answer to everything, the judge was like, nope, and still indicted him for the Whoa. kidnapping of Grace. Wow. And his trial was to start in December. So back to prison he went. Poor Pope. Through all this, the press was still celebrating the capture of Mr. Pope, but King, he never forgot about his man, the primary suspect before Mr. Pope appeared, Albert E. Corthell. So two weeks before Mr. Pope's trial, King fucking finally got his man. Corthell was going under the name of J.W. West, which is one of his favorite ones. And he was arrested in St. Louis because his stupid ass was trying to cash a $15,000 check that was made out to the Park Board of Illinois. Hmm. He was arrested and he fucking finally admitted his true identity. Finally, King got his man. After two years of searching for this piece of shit, he had his main suspect in the Grace Bud case. Mr. Pope's trial started and ended as soon as it began. 
because first Mrs. Budd was called to the stand where she retracted her identification of Mr. Pope, saying it was a mistake because his wife had guilted her into doing it. Her husband and Willie Corman, they too denied that Mr. Pope was Frank Howard. Jesse Pope, she was the only one sticking to her story. And Mr. Pope's attorney quickly dismissed her testimony by establishing that she had been a real bitch to her husband for years. Yeah, you're a bitch, yeah. And after a recess, like that. <laughs> and after a recess, the judge, William Allen, he directed the jury to return a not guilty verdict. Finally, releasing the innocent Mr. Pope from prison after almost four months behind bars. He was in prison, not in jail. Prison. And then after they're like, yeah, we fucked up. Sorry. Well, I mean, they didn't because it was his wife. It wasn't their fuck up. It's his wife's the one that was like, it was him, it was him, it was him. So they, you know what I mean? Still, with Mr. Pope, a free man, Albert E. Corthell, he became suspect number one once again. But he denied any involvement with the kidnapping of Grace, which was hard to believe coming from a professional liar. But over the next few months, they couldn't find one bit of evidence against Corthell, and Mrs. Budd couldn't ID him as Frank Howard. So on February 16, 1931, Albert E. Corthell, he was discharged without a trial. And this was a huge blow to everyone involved searching for Grace's kidnapper. Because not only did they waste two years searching for the wrong man, now they had no leads with no clues regarding Grace's fate or the identity of her kidnapper. King, he was mad as fuck, but he remained motivated, just thinking that somewhere some asshole who was responsible for the capture of Grace was just hanging out somewhere made him work that much harder, and he promised to himself that he would find the bastard no matter how long it took. So on December 15th, 1930, exactly one week before Charles Edwards Pope was released, Albert Fish was committed to the psychiatric ward at Bellevue Hospital for a 10-day observation. Looking like death, this frail-bodied, gray-mustached piece of shit was arrested a few weeks before for sending non mailable matter through the mail here is an official quote regarding the contents of these letters a letter of such vile obscene and filthy nature that to read forth the contents thereof would defile the records of the court He was sending some gross shit. And we're going to find out what kind of gross shit he was oh, sending. Shit. Hey, yo, baby, let me eat that ass. Let me. <laughs> that's not even. That's how it starts. But, you know, this wasn't Albert's first time getting arrested for sending naughty mail. Yeah. This wasn't his first rodeo with the police. Also, as we're going to discover. You know, his rap sheet starts in 1903. And in 1928, he was arrested three times for larceny. In a month. God damn. Obviously, after the whole Grace kidnapping, he lay low for a while, or at least tried to avoid the police as much as possible. But for whatever reason, he couldn't control the he couldn't control the urge to send these dirty little these little dirty letters out. 
he found almost impossible to resist the urge to sit down and vomit onto paper his obscene letters. So beginning in early 1929, Fish began to mail these letters to random women whose information he would get from agencies and classified ads, which we know Fish read looking for more prey. In his letters, he would pretend he was a successful Hollywood producer, ready to doll out wads of cash and his undying love, of course, to any lady that was willing to perform certain services either on him or his quote-unquote teenage son, whom he called Bobby. The letters were filled with violence, sadomasochistic fantasies that they read like a triple X maniac lyrics book. For though, and for those of you lucky enough to not have stumbled upon this band or this genre of music, which was called Porno Grind, Triple X Maniac had bangers such as these Sprayed by Cans of Shit, A Knife Called Pussy Liquor, Prowler in the Shower, Priest in Preschool, Semen for the Basement Slaves, and Only Those Who Eat the Feces Will Be Spared. That's the kind of shit they would sing about. And all of these songs, you could, you could find these songs on their debut album, which is properly titled Harvesting the Cut Nectar. Very poetic. So from the album... That's a Marty shit there, bro. So from the album and the song titles, you can tell what these guys were about, what they would sing about. And Robert Fish might have been, might as well have been the fucking singer, because he wrote about everything from being tied up to getting shat on. <clears throat> what do you say? What do you say? Yeah, well, Albert Fish is a sick fuck, and this right. is what he said. All right, tell us. I wish you could see now. I am sitting in a chair naked. The pain is across my back, just over my behind. When you strip me naked, you will see a most perfect form. Yours, yours, sweet honey of my heart. Sweet piss, your sweet shit. You must pee in the glass, and I shall drink every drop on my knees. Pull up your clothes, take down your drawers, and hold my mouth to your sweet honey, fat ass, and eat your sweet peanut butter as it comes out fresh and hot. That is how we do it, Hollywood. Those are the kind of letters he was. These, he was sending these kind of random letters, these letters to like random women. And then you see a picture of Albert Fish. And you see that, yeah. See, but the way like the way I read the letters was like the way I was reading it and like the kind of voice he was doing was even weirder because I just pictured him being like, yeah, yeah, yeah like old, yeah, yeah, no, not even just like super perverted. Like you must pee pee in a glass. And I shall drink and Like, that's the kind of shit I was picturing him. Like, the way he was writing it. Like, he was, he was, you know, he was hard, hard as fuck when he was writing these letters. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's the kind of, <laughs> that's the kind of letters he was writing. Like that, bro? I don't know, man. Do you expect me to read some bullshit like that? You got me <laughs> fucked up. I read that shit. And to another woman, he explained that his only son, Bobby, who was, of course, crippled as a toddler, needed to be spanked. And spanked a lot. He wrote in his letter that Bobby needed to be spanked for his own good, you know, but not to worry. If he needs to use the restroom, you know, Bobby will let you know. He also wrote that if Bobby needed to go pee, that she had to unbutton his pants, but she must take out his monkey. 
What? Are you watching? Huh? Want to take out my monkey? <laughs> His pants and drawers are all made up with a rear opening. All you have to do is loosen the buttons in the back and down they come. Saves a lot of time and comes in handy when you want to spank him. You don't have to strip him except at night for bed or to give him a bath. The doctor says that three or four good spankings a day on his bare behind will do him good as he is nice and fat there. What the? Hey, Alch, are you fat and nice there? Only yeah. you loosen up the buttons. It stinks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. That should have been the voice. <laughs> Fuck. God damn it. You know, so Fish, he mailed these lovely letters to different women. Oh, lovely. And on September, Real lovely. Real and lovely. on September 30th, 1930, he mailed one to a professional housekeeper. She freaked out and she turned it over to the police. And Fish, who was using his alias Robert Fisk, his stupid ass wrote a return address in case any of the women wanted to get freaky with him. So immediately he was arrested. And because by this point, they knew who he was from these letters. And they're like, what? Is, oh, it's like, like creepy old fuck. The lady would come in with the letters and be like, ah, oh, god damn it. Fucking fish. So they would just go and pick him up. And so a little before Thanksgiving, that's when he was sent to Bellevue for a psychiatric observation. Hmm. And after a week in Bellevue, he was interviewed by a doctor, Atilo La Guardia, and asked him, like, why did you send these letters? And when did it start? And Fish explained that it started the summer of last year. When he was working as a handyman and a painter for this doctor. And one night, when all the employees they got together for a nightly poker game, one of the guys pulled out a stack of dirty letters that he found in the trash, and he read them to the guys. And after playing coy with Dr. LaGuardia and playing up the innocent, oh, I was just being dumb, I just thought I was being funny, LaGuardia kept prodding and asking fish for personal things, like when was the last time you had sex? If he went to church and things of that nature. And like Fish, he wasn't stupid. So he just played up his old man shtick and that was it. LaGuardia then passed off his notes to the staff that was to evaluate Fish. And during Fish's observation, he was quiet. He was cooperative. He conducted himself in a normal manner. Like they found no evidence of any weird delusions or like hallucinatory experiences. Like sure, he was starting to show signs of like senile of him being senile but overall like they're like dude this dude's memory is excellent especially for his age mm. like sure he was a pervert but that was mainly caused by his senile changes or at least that's what they chalked it up to so after everything they concluded that fish wasn't insane and this would obviously come back years later and bite everyone in the dick it was easy to misjudge fish from the perverted monster that he truly was after all he was the shriveled, decrepit old man, and it was hard and ended up being almost impossible, even by mental health specialists, to see Fish as dangerously insane. So when he was arrested, Fish had recently turned 60, even though many at the Bellevue Hospital thought he was way older than like 60. I thought you were like fucking 80. 
So he spent almost an entire month in Bellevue. And to the doctors and nurses who were there, he was just, he was like the polite old man. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Oh, excuse me, man. He was polite. Didn't freak out. Didn't do everything. But as they started to wear on, as the day started to go, he started to get desperate to get the fuck out. So on January 5th, he mailed a letter to his oldest daughter, which he came across as this whiny, self-pitying old man. Why do none write to me? I am the one here who does not receive a letter or a visitor. I have written to you, to Gertrude, Jean, and Henry, and none of you answer. I am three weeks here today. Now, Annie, do this for your poor old father. Write a letter to Dr. Gregory and ask him in God's name to send me back to court. You know, the sooner I get my sentence, the sooner I am back home. Don't fail me now. Love to you, all from Papa. You know, and so Fish, he got, you know, he he got his wish. And about two weeks later, on January 16th, he was discharged from Bellevue and put on probation by the judge. And he was released. And you know what's crazy? I don't know if you get into that. He had what, five children? Five children. Five children. After his wife left him, he was left to take care of all five children. And through all the phases that he went through, like all the children could say that not once his father like sexually abused them, yeah. physically abused them, or any, you know, malice intention towards yeah. him. He was just a, he was just Yeah, just to other but he was just a father. He was yeah. a father to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was released and put into the custody of his daughter Anna. And just like that, Albert Fish was back on the streets. Mm. Back on the streets. So now it's the summer of 1934, and Albert Fish was sharing an apartment with her son, Fish Jr. On this particular day, Jr. was returning back to the apartment in the building which he had been hired to superintend. Jr. was in charge of all the physical labor, like painting, plumbing, and carpentry, while Fish was in charge of like sweeping the back alleys and the front and taking care of the mice and the roaches in the building. So on this particular day, Junior was painting the lobby of the building when one of the tenants from the top floor ran down to let him know that his bathroom sink had taken a shit. It broke, but his restroom was flooding. So Junior rushed to his apartment to grab his tools. As he walked in, he heard noises, which wasn't strange because he's like, all right, my dad's probably home. But then he realized that the noises were coming from his room. And these noises were fucking weird. They were thuds, slaps, and muffled cries. So Junior tiptoed his way and looked inside his room from the crack of the open door. His room was dark with the shades being closed and all, but there was still enough light for Junior to clearly see what was going on. Oh boy. Mm-mm. Albert was standing in the middle of the room, completely naked, beating his throbbing meat with one hand, and with the other, he would reach behind and smack his ass with a nail studded 
wooden paddle. Oh, no. He would jump and cry with every hit. His skin was glossy from all the sweat. And his face looked almost as red as his bare, bloodied ass. Well, what a great way to paint a fucking picture. Albert was in another universe, lost in a sea of horny pleasure. And he continued his self-flagellation, completely unaware that his son was looking directly at him. Junior just stood there. He too was lost and he was embarrassed to move until something snapped him back to reality. So he just tiptoed back very slowly. Get the fuck out of there. Got his tools and got the fuck out of his apartment. And as weird and gross as this was, this wasn't the first time Junior had gotten a glimpse into his dad's like weird behavior. Like there was this one time when he was younger, him and his brothers were playing in the back of their house and his dad was standing on a little hill by an apple orchard. And he was just yelling into the air with his arms raised to the sky. I am Christ! And he would yell that over, he was just yelling that over and over and over and over again. I guess he was Christ. Junior was also aware of the paddle and had known about it for a few years now. The first time he saw the paddle, it was when he was standing next to the sink washing dishes and his foot hit something that was hiding the paddle and made like a little ding noise. So Junior crouched and reached behind the sink to see what it was. Maybe a hose or something was loose. But when he looked, there leaning up against the wall was a pair of really shitty homemade paddles with nails coming through the head of them. Hmm. He reached for them and when he grabbed them, he literally was like, what the fuck? Why are these nails peppered in red paint? But then he realized he was looking at blood-covered nails when he got a closer look. Just then, his father walks in and Junior starts pressing his dad. What are these? Are these yours? What are they for? You really want to know, you little dick bitch boy? <laughs> okay, he didn't actually say that. I just wrote that just because I wanted to hear you say no, it. No, 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 no. He fucking said, he said that. He would okay? say shit like He that. looked into Junior's eyes and said, you really want to know, you little dick bitch boy. <laughs> I use them on myself. I get these feelings that come over me. And every time they do, little dick bitch boy, <laughs> I have to torture myself with these motherfucking paddles. And that was literally the last time they spoke about the paddles. <laughs> Damn. But this was the first time Junior had actually seen his dad use them. Junior, you know, Junior, he was too embarrassed to talk to his sisters about this. Who wouldn't? About anything. So he just kept it to himself and kept it moving. Sure, seeing his dad spank his ass with a paddle full of needles while he beat his meat naked in his room was embarrassing. Oh, he was in his room. Yeah, it wasn't even in his own room. It was in his room. It was a... It was embarrassing, but he wasn't surprised, especially when he would learn that his father was going to jail. After all, at this point in Albert's life, he was always having run-ins with the police, even after being released from Bellevue. So his dad was going in and out of jail, but it, it was just like, he'd go to jail, they'd take him to a psychiatric hospital, he'd trick them into thinking he's, okay, he's fine, and they'd just release him. And, they'd just, and he'd keep doing that over and over again. And in fact, it wasn't even six months after the Bellevue incident that Albert was back to sending his naughty letters to random women. This time, Albert was picked up by police while he was at work, working as a dishwasher and handyman at a local hotel in Queens. 
He was charged with sending letters to a local. He was caught sending letters to a local boarding school. Huh. So they searched his apartment, and when they reached his room, they found more letters underneath his mattress. But they also found the homemade cat of nine tails, which was like a small whip with like nine strands of rope. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they found that, and tucked inside a drawer, a frankfurter, and a carrot, both stained in shit. So one of the cops, he picked up the little whip and asked what he used it for. Albert just shrugged and said he'd just like, he like to whip himself with it. It's like your fucking business. So then he put it down. And then using his index finger and his thumb, he picked up the Frankfurter and asked, what the fuck did you use this for? I stick him up my ass. That's literally what he said. He just yelled at him. I stick him up my ass. And then he immediately dropped. He just oh. jizzed. Oh, I guess he likes sticking stuff up his ass. Wow. So they arrested Fish, and he was shipped off to King's Country Hospital, where he would go another period of observation. Hmm. This time, he was only there for 10 days. He was interviewed once, but he was not asked about the whip, about the frankfurter, about the carrot, or about the letters. They deemed him quiet, cooperative, and oriented. On the 5th of September, 1931, Fish was free again. And for a while, Fish was back to acting normal. And Junior was starting to believe that maybe those last 10 days actually did his father some good. But the good times didn't last. And beginning in June of 1934, shit started to hit the fan with Albert. First, Junior caught his dad beating off and beating on himself in his room again. And then... Fish started to crave raw meat. But he only seemed to crave raw meat when the moon was full. Hmm. Something was happening with Albert and Junior was kind of tired of his dad. Junior, he was already thinking of leaving and moving out when the summer was over. But what was really getting to him were the nightmares his dad was suddenly having. Junior would be awakened from violent thrashings and terrified gasps coming from his dad's room. So Junior would get up and just rush over to his dad. Panting and sweating, Albert Fish, he would get up and just look around the room as if he was looking for something. Junior could see his father's face from the little light that came into the room, and Albert's face was just struck with fear as he would replay the nightmares he was just awoken from. Grace was haunting his dreams. In his dream, she would rise from the ground and just charge at him. Her small face twisted with terror and fury. Her fingers curled into claws, her little girl's voice shrill with her final cry. I'll tell Mama. Fish would wake up in a puddle of sweat with his heart racing, with God's own words ringing in his ears. God demanded his atonement, so Albert would hop off the bed, get completely naked, and grab his needles and thimbles. He would squat, reach up into his asshole, and start stuffing the needles and thimble, shoving harder and deeper until they were all the way in. The torture was paralyzing, white hot, he would describe it. But the pain made his meat go brawly. And he would just start stroking his meat like a savage. This would get him horny. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you mean Brawly from Dragon Ball Z? You know when Brawly, you know when I mentioned yeah, when Brawly, yeah, okay, that's a fucked up reference. 
You know who Brawly is? Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. I was like, yeah. oh, fucking. Motherfucker did a freaking Dragon Ball Z hard, reference. Bro. He went hard, dude. He went he throbbing. Went, he was throbbing. He was saying. He stuck the needles up his ass and he got hard and just started beating off. And after his, I guess, well-deserved nut, he would just lie on the floor enjoying the pain in his ass. But he would always feel cleansed and clear-headed. You know, he was going to that post-nut clarity we all go through. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then through this, through this post-nut clarity. He would rationalize what he did to Grace, assuring himself that he did the right thing. Because she died a virgin, and technically he rescued her from the ultimate violation, as he would put it. Fucking asshole. Even though Grace wasn't the first child he killed, she was different. He could remember how excited he was the week before he kidnapped her and how anxious he got. He was so hung up on Grace that he even made Junior drive back to the house where he killed her. But his conscience was starting to get the better of him. And the last time he went, he couldn't even get out of the car. He was starting to think that maybe he was not going to be able to take Grace with him to his grave. Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, as the years went by, from time to time, a story about Grace would turn up in the newspapers. And when he would find them, he would tear it out and start with the other clippings regarding Grace. Then on the six-year anniversary of Grace's disappearance... Six years later, there were stories being printed about Grace throughout a few newspapers. And he would visibly get upset as he would read how wrong they were about everything. But while reading these articles, he came up on an interesting little fact. The Buds had a new address, 135th West 24th Street. He didn't know how or when he would need this information, but he took the address down. Oh, he started to kick around the idea that what if he wrote Mrs. Bud one of these days to tell her the truth about what happened to her daughter. After all, they did treat him so nice the two times he met them. Maybe telling them about Grace and what happened to her on that night six years ago was the least he could do. So for over six years, Detective King kept the Bud's case as his main priority. Sure, during those six years, he handled other cases, but King never abandoned the search for Grace, and by early 1934, he had traveled over 50,000 miles searching Ooh. for her, and he was doing everything in the book to help him keep the case alive. One of his favorite things to do was to plant fake stories about the case to New York City newspapers, because each time he did, the police would receive dozens of phone calls and letters claiming they knew something regarding Grace in the case. Obviously, none of these tips ever panned out, but there was hope that eventually one would. King was doing everything in his power from having the public forget, you know, forget about Grace. And King's main plug when it came to planting these fake stories was a Walter Winchell. He had a popular column on Broadway, that's what it was called, on the, Daily, on the New York Daily Mirror. And Winchell was as influential as it got when it came to being a columnist. He was real close with everybody who was somebody. He was friends, he was friends with everybody from J. Edgar Hoover to the mobster Oni Madden. And he was happy to help King out with his requests. And on November 2nd, 1934, Winchell put the following on his column. I checked the Grace Bud mystery. She was eight when she was kidnapped six years ago. 
and it is safe to tell you that the Department of Missing Person will break the case or expect to the following weeks. They are holding their man at Randall's Island, who is said to know most about the crime. Grace supposed to have been done away with in Lyme, but another legends is that her skeleton is buried in a local spot. So 10 days later after this was posted, the Budd family received a letter the night before and was made out for Delia Budd, Grace's mother. And even though Mrs. Budd was illiterate, she could still make out her name. And as she sat down with the letter in hand, she tried making out what the letter said, but her illiteracy proved to be a blessing. Edward was home and she called out to him to read the letter. And as he began to read, the color of his skin vanished. Asking what's wrong, Edward didn't answer. Then immediately bolted out the door. By 10.30 the next morning, Detective King had the letter in his hands. Over the years, King had read fake letter after fake letter, but just the vile nature of this specific one was something he couldn't compare to any of the others he had received. My dear Mrs. Budd, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma. He sailed from San Francisco for Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he had two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from one to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go into any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stewed meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl will be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, the other eleven. Took them to his home, stripped them naked, and tied them in his closet. Then burned everything they had on. Several times a day and night, he spanked and tortured them to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except for his head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. The little boy was next and went out the same way. At the same time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street. He told me so often how good human flesh was that I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June 3rd, 1928, 
I called you at 406 West 15th Street and brought you pot cheese and strawberries. We had lunch and Grace sat on my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already checked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked flowers and I went upstairs, stripped my clothes as not to get any blood on them. When we all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in the closet until she was in my room. When she saw me naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and she began to cry. She was going to tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked and she began to kick and bite. Then I choked her to death, cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her. I could have if I wished, but I did it. She died a virgin. What a sick fuck! Remember, fuck. His, remember his nightmares. The the thing that the thing that the thing that she yelled at him. I'm gonna tell my mama. Yeah, yeah I'll tell mama. That's what those those the last words she said right before he killed her. Nah. I'm gonna tell my mama. Oh boy. The letter was beyond nightmare fuel to the bug Oof. and King, but something about the letter made it seem an authentic one compared to the others. Sure, the letter didn't give any information that wasn't already plastered in the newspapers. Except now, there was a brand new clue. Albert provided an address, 409 East 100th Street, which was in the neighborhood the police and King focused on during their investigation. Mm -hmm. King was surprised that if the letter was true, why is the kidnapper communicating with the buds now? So King took to his files and pulled out the Frank Howard photocopy of the Western Union. He sent Edward... And comparing the two, it didn't take an expert to see that the writing was identical in both. Shit. Finally, after being kicked in the dick for so long, King was finally feeling that the end of the Grace Bud case was within grasp, even if that meant it took him six years to do it. On the back of the envelope in which the My Dear Letter was sent in, a small emblem with a circle in the center was imprinted with the initials NYPCBA on each of the corners of the hexagonal nut-shaped circle. Whether it was plain laziness or not, Fish didn't find it important to really remove any of the markings on this envelope. A two-line address was below the emblem, which he only kind of crossed out with a pen. Lazily at that. All in all... King could easily make out the address on the envelope. 627 
Lexington Avenue. So King grabbed his coat and headed uptown where he discovered what the initials NYPCBA stood for. The address was the headquarters of the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. So King introduced himself to the president of the association and asked if a man by the name of Frank Howard ever belonged to the association. But after checking his files, Arthur Ennis, the president of the association, found no records of anyone with that name. So the next day, King held King held an emergency meeting of the association where he described the man he was after and told and told them about the anonymous letter that was sent in their envelope and that if anybody had any information or knew of someone who had stolen any stationery to come forth because remember this was the time where you could only write letters so every building had their own envelopes with their own insignia mm, so like yeah. no one's going to come into the street and mail something so we couldn't find a frank howard so if anybody here knows about somebody stealing or remembers somebody or boxes going missing of, of the stationery, please let me know. Mm. And after the meeting, King was approached by a like little scrawny kid. His name was Lee Sikowski and explained to him that he worked part time as a net, as a janitor. And about six months earlier, he had taken a few sheets of paper and some envelopes from the office. King asked him what he did with the stationery, and Lee told him, I took it home to an apartment he used to live when he took the envelopes, when he was working as a janitor. He told King that when he moved to his current apartment, he left he left the stationery and the papers at his old place. Lee gave King the address to his old apartment, and off King went. And King immediately showed up, and he spoke to the landlady, Mrs. Frieda Schneider, and he showed her the flyer describing Frank Howard, and the look she gave King let him know that he was on his ass. She told him that the man sounded a lot like one of the hoarders that moved in into, Ronos, into room 107, the exact room that Lee used to rent. Mm. And he moved in immediately after Lee. But he no longer lived there because he only stayed there for two months. So King asked her if she could show him the register this man must have signed when renting the room. And she <clears> did. She pulled out the file and she gave it to King. And King compared the writing to the writing of the My Dear Letter. The letter and his writing match. And then King stared at the registered signature. The old man had signed it. <gasps> Albert H. Fish. Oh, got him. fuck, we got him. So King started grilling Miss Schneider about Albert. But she didn't have a lot to say about him. But she did give King what he needed. She told him that Albert had a son who was in North Carolina working for the CCC, which is the Civilian Conservation Corps, which is a government program aimed at offering young men jobs. And she knew this because Albert was receiving a $25 check from his son every month. And to make King blow his load even harder, she told him that Fish was still expecting one more check. Oh. Before moving out, Fish told her that he was expecting one more check and told it for him. That he'd be back for it in a week or so. Oh. So starting that night, November 14th, 1934, King set up round-the-clock stakeout waiting for Fish to return for his check. And while he was and while he was going on, and while that was going on, he contacted the finance office for the CCC, that same government program, who promised him that they would let him know when the next paychecks were going to be mailed out. 
And just to make sure Albert doesn't slip from his fucking fingertips, he had the New York Postal's office hold any letters for any Albert Fish. So for the next few weeks, they intercepted letters for Fish, but he was nowhere to be found. Then on the afternoon of December 13, 1934, King's phone rang. It was Frieda Schneider. Albert Fish was sitting in her living room. King rushed to her apartment. And as he walked in, there, seated at a small wooden table, drinking from a teacup, was Albert Fish, the frail-bodied man with the gray mustache. King closed the door behind him and called out to Albert. Albert got up slowly as his age was starting to creep up on him. And with one hand reached into his pocket as to reach for his watch, but he pulled out a razor blade and held it in front of him. But remember, King, he was he was a he was he was a badass motherfucker. He wasn't gonna let this motherfucker do something to him. <laughs> so he pulled out a razor blade. So King grabbed Fish by the wrist and slapped the razor from his hand, knocking Fish back onto the chair. King, not one to let his emotions get the better of him, was suddenly hit with the realization that there he was, standing there, staring down at the gray old man he had been hunting for over half a decade. So after it was all said and done, Albert Fish would retell his story over and over again. Sometimes he'd omit parts, skip over details, but the confession he gave after his arrest was the most consistent from them all. New York learned about the story the following morning of his arrest, but no one, not the police, the mental health experts, the public, no one could believe what they were reading. It was that crazy of a story. So after King arrested Albert, he took him to a police headquarters and into room 115, the office of Captain John, the head of the Missing Persons Bureau. It was 10 till 2, and King and Fish were alone in the office while the captain was out for lunch. For over half a decade, Grace's kidnapper was living in King's head rent-free. And to think that this harmless-looking old man, who was no taller than 5'1", was the man that kept him up all those sleepless nights. King interrogated Fish about the letter that was sent to Mrs. Budd and the telegram that the Buds had received from Frank Howard. And Albert freely admitted that he wrote them and that he was Frank Howard as well. But when he was asked if he was the man that took Grace from her home, Fish denied knowing anything about Grace's kidnapping. Hmm. King looked at Fish and told him if he expected him, like, does he expect him to believe that he wasn't there after everything he just said? And Fish just looked up at him and just calmly said, I wasn't there. So King, being the big, dick, badass that he was, he responded back. I'll tell you what. I'm going to send for the manager of the Western Union office at 104th Street where the telegraph was sent. Then I'm going to go hold a member of the Costa family who owned the building on 409th when you lived there in 1928. Then I'm going to bring down the whole family and Willie Corman. Then I'm going to... Don't send for these people. I'll tell you all about it. I'm the man you want. I took Grace from her home on the third day of June and brought her to Westchester and killed her that same afternoon. 
So King, ready with a pen and paper in his hand, Fish began to recall the summer of 1928 when this quote-unquote bloodthirst was at its most feral and he found the need to kill. It's crazy. Fish told King that Grace was not his intended kill. Not that it mattered, but he was going to murder her brother Edward. Nothing against Edward, Fish said. He thought he was a good kid, but he just felt he needed his next sacrifice you know, to be a boy. Fish... Fish's plan was to lure Edward to an abandoned house, overpower him, bind him with cords, and then cut off his penis. Then he was going to take the train back to the city, pack his shit, and leave town, leaving the mutilated boy to bleed to death on the floor of the empty house. Fish had been searching for a while for his next victim, and it was only by chance that he saw Edward's job wanted ad. Fish was no stranger to making shit up, so it was easy to come up with the lie he sold the buds. Fish described how he was disappointed at how strong Edward looked. He was basically an adult already. Things got even more complicated when Edward introduced his best friend, Willie Corman. Fish didn't want to deal with them, but he had no choice. Everything was already in motion. Plus, he was too horny to kill even to think about starting over. Plus, he was confident that he was going to be able to take both Willie and Edward. So finally, after retelling him the events that happened and two meetings between he and the Buds, Fish told King that as soon as he saw a glimpse of Grace, he knew it was her, not her brother or his friend that he was going to kill. So after coming up with the imaginary party and having the Buds let him take the little girl, he begins to paint the picture that King was so adamant on seeing. So after leaving the Buds, they boarded a train to Sedgwick, where they switched lines and traveled to Van Cortland Park Station. There, Fish bought two tickets, a round-trip ticket for himself and a one-way ticket for Grace. Once inside the train, Fish let Grace sit next to the window so she could enjoy the scenery. Fish put his bundle with his implements of help next to his feet, and he settled for the 45-minute train ride. Nobody on board could have guessed what was about to happen, but how could they? Fish dressed in his three-piece suit and fedora and Grace in her white dress, they would have taken them for a dapper old gentleman taking his granddaughter for a nice Sunday outing. Mm -hmm. As they got out of the train, Fish was lost in thought, and he had forgotten his package inside the train, and it would have stayed in the train. If it wasn't for Grace, she ran back inside the train, fetched it for him. If only she knew. Fish held Grace by the hand and led her to their destination. They continued up steep hills for another mile, where they arrived to an empty two-story house known as the Wisteria Cottage. The house was set up that it was almost at the end of the property line. A few dozen feet away from the curb and was surrounded on all sides by the thick woods which isolated the house from any nosy neighbors. Fish led Grace up half a dozen steps to a small grassy yard at the side of the house. The yard was full of wild flowers, to which Fish told Grace to play with while he went inside the house to grab something. Fish walked around to the rear of the house and stuffed Grace's coat 
and hat underneath a large flat stone. As he was making his way inside, he picked up an empty five-gallon paint can and took it inside the house with him. Fish went directly to the second floor of the house and entered the corner bedroom that overlooked the front yard where he could see Grace playing in. He squatted underneath the window and unrolled his bundle and removed each tool one by one. The saw, the cleaver, and the double-edged butcher's knife. And laid them neatly on the floor. Then he got naked and put his clothes away. He then opened the window just a little bit, just enough to call for Grace, asking her to come inside the house. Grace walked into the house with a little bouquet of wildflowers and followed Fish's voice as he called out to her. And as soon as she reached the second floor, Fish ran out into the hallway. Grace began to scream when she saw Fish naked. I'll tell my mama, she yelled, dropping her flowers ready to run downstairs. But quick for his age, Fish grabbed Grace by the throat and pulled her into the empty bedroom. Grace began to struggle and surprised Fish on how strong she was for her age. Fish dug his fingers into her throat. Then he dragged her over to the canvas tarp and knelt on her chest with his full weight while he continued to choke her. Albert was fully erect by now. When he was sure she was dead, he lifted her head and rested it on the rim of the paint can he brought inside. Then he reached for his double-edged knife and cut off Grace's head, making sure to catch as much blood inside the paint can. King interrupted Fish for just a brief moment. Did you use a girl's body? Did you rape her? She died a virgin. Fish then went back to his story and after a few moments... He undressed the corpse and tossed all the bloody clothes into a walk-in closet that was just a few feet away. Opening the window from which he called Grace from, he opened it enough where he was able to dump the blood out into the yard. He just dumped it to the yard. Mm. Fish returned to the body, knelt beside it, and using the knife again, he began to slice through her torso right below her belly. When he reached her spine, he switched to the cleaver and after a few hacks, Grace's body now lay chopped in two. Carrying Grace's white shoes in one hand and her head in the other, Fish went downstairs. Out the side door and up the hill to the wooden outhouse. He thought about getting rid of the head by dropping it into the toilet hole, but that seemed wrong to him. So he just put the head in the corner and covered it with some newspaper. That seemed wrong to him? It's exactly Mm. what I was thinking. But he did place her shoes inside the toilet hole. Back inside the house, he picked up the upper and lower halves of Grace's body and propped them up in the corner next to the closet. Then he opened the closet door so that the body was hidden from view behind the door. By the time he was finished, his hands were covered in blood, but there was no water in the house, so he walked back outside and spent a few minutes cleaning himself on the grass. Then he returned to the second-story bedroom and got dressed. He carefully wrapped his tools in the tarp and placed them behind Grace's behind. It was 10 past 4 p.m. when he left the house and headed back to the rail station. With a new piece of paper, King began to question Fish. What time did you get home? About 6.30. And then what did you do? I returned for the body four days later. I took the body and legs from behind the door. The legs were so stiff that I just threw them out the window into the lawn 
and carried the torso out, picking up the legs as I passed them and went to the stone wall in the back of the house. I laid the body and legs as if they were complete behind this stone wall. I then went to the outhouse and got the head. It was all stiff, the hair was clotted. I brought the head up and placed the head with the body to complete grace. Did you bury it? No, I left it on top of the ground. Then I went back into the house and took the tools and threw them over the wall. Have you been there since? About four or five times with my son. Have you seen the body? No. It had been almost an hour that King had been questioning Albert Fish. And he only had one more question he wanted to ask. What made you do it? You know, I can never account for it. And that is where we'll stop for part one of our Albert Fish series. God damn, this man is crazy. Albert uh, Fish, that son of a bitch. A gross dude, man. It was sick, bro. It was sick as fuck, man. Reading all oh, that yeah, before that was... all this and getting I'm like, dude, this is this is one sick fuck, dude. A lot of fucking oh my god. I felt I felt so bad when he was like in the letter. A teaser your ass. That whole famine, that whole famine thing was crazy to me. That was, that was, I mean, as fucked as it may sound, that was a great setup for what he was going to say. And again, just in case you guys didn't hear, the source for today's episode is a book called Deranged, the shocking true story of America's most fiendish killer by Harold Schechter. And, and if you want to know a short Crash Course version of Albert Fish. I uh, found this video on YouTube. I'm pretty sure you watched it too. Yeah. On the YouTube page known as Biographics, in which they uh, do short videos on different individuals, um, serial killers, and, and anything about that nature. And they talk about Albert Fish uh, shortly for about 17, 18 yeah. minutes. We'll post yeah. that video on the on this episode show notes. So you can just go yeah. down, just click the video in case you just want a good. Like summary of the whole yeah. story of Albert Fish, mm-hmm. and they have images of uh, uh, the Bud family. So you see Mrs. Bud, you see Mister. Oh yeah, Mr. Did, Bud also if you guys want to see what whatever what, everything we talked about from who Albert Fish look, Frank Howard to fucking Big Dick King to the Bud families to Grace Bud to everybody, go to our Instagram. Weird history. Here we tell Spod the plug. We guys can check all that shit out. Uh-huh, so yeah, uh-huh, man. Uh-huh. Um. Like I said, I like I said, we I mentioned since the beginning that we weren't gonna do any of these topics, but it's Halloween. I was like, I don't wanna do any more Halloween little legend things. Might as well spice it up. And then I had a friend who was talking to me who was telling me 
she was telling me she's like she's like are, are you guys ever gonna co- are you guys ever gonna cover any serial killers i'm like oh that's not really our thing and she was like oh because i thought it'd be funny if you guys covering it just because you guys are just jackasses and i want to see what you guys' views that's true, are that's true that's true we are a you, trio you want to hear the the crash jackass. course jackass version of serial and killers. fucking inglesi version <laughs> But yeah, this is part one. It's, gonna, it's only going to be a two-parter. That's why this episode is fucking long. It's fucking nice to have everybody back. We're back, bitches. We're back. Guess who's back? God damn, like I said, I do not miss doing I do not miss doing these by myself. I do not. When was our last time we were together as a group? I'll teach you to remember. What was the last episode you did? It's four episodes ago, bro. No, five episodes five, ago. Like five, five episodes ago. It was horrible. It was horrible. How don't, don't you ever get, get shit. Get your shit straight, man. Get your shit together. Oh, because me being sick? Yeah, fix your shit. Suck my dick. Take some fucking vitamin D. Go drink some Sunny D or something. But again, thank you guys. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Hopefully, if things go right, maybe every Halloween, that'll be our thing. We'll cover one monster of a fucking piece of shit. Who knows? But um, again, we have top. We have several topics that we had in store. The one I'm excited for is the one we were originally supposed to do almost two months ago, mm-hmm. which is which is the one Achi has been sitting on, which is actually his episode, which is an episode on aliens. No, aliens. So after the after this fucking piece of shit, Albert Fish um series, then we'll go into some like lightheartedness and talk about aliens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the different races of aliens. Yeah, because this. Is- this was dark. I'm going to go shower. How dare you? I don't know. But thank you guys. Thank you guys for showing up, for being back. I'm so glad that we're back together. Feels nice to not be staring at my fucking computer while recording. Well, well last episode, I, I stared at you, but it felt good, like, staring. What the fuck does that mean? The fuck? Um, do you guys have anything else to add? No. I mean, uh, feels good to be back. Yeah. Fuck you, Achi, but... uh. Feels good. Feels good. It's all good. The feeling's mutual. Yeah. All right. All right. Good um, pray for Achi because he for Achi. is. Pray for Achi because he is suffering teaching through these Zoom classes. Oh boy. <laughs> that, I, we can make that an episode on its own, but yeah. Talk, talking about horror. <laughs> the horror. Yeah, we're online classes. Y'all taking Halloween too seriously? It's a it's a nightmare. Mm. All right. Well, uh, there you have it, folks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> moving on moving on <laughs> moving on um thank you guys so much hope you guys enjoyed the episode if you guys can please rate and review us the link to rate and review us is on our instagram you guys can just click on the link mm-hmm. and it'll take you to itunes where you can rate and review us again we are on spotify if you guys want follow us on instagram weird history it retails pod as we post episodes on our story where you can just click on it and it'll take you to fucking spotify we have we have some. We have three years worth of shit. Whether it's pirates and a few episodes on Atlantis, things that you may or may not like, vampires, Satan. We have a bunch of things. So if you guys are new, we have a lot of new listeners. Thank you guys for joining us. Hopefully, you guys fucking stick around. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. with that being said, if you have no one has anything else to add, thank you guys. And as always, oh, thank you guys and gals. Oh yeah, we're fifty fifty. We're fifty fifty, which is which is really strange compared to earlier in our. In our career, where it was like mostly dudes listening to us, now it's like half and half. So thank you guys, <laughs> so thank you guys and gals. And if nobody has anything else to add, as always, we are the weird history. Here it tells Pod.